I think that most people who care about the quality of their life have to look to their brain health and their mind health. And today we're going to take a very in-depth and broad-based look at brain health, what makes brain health, what makes mind health. And I, I'd say if you care about your brain and your mind, tune in. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Neuroflex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. If you guys are looking for a real way to upgrade your brain performance, check out neuroflex.com. Learn more about the QEEG brain mapping that we do to assess the electrical activity of your brain and then the different neuromodulation technologies such as neurofeedback, photobiomodulation, and several others uh, that work to correct some of those electrical imbalances and restore your brain to optimal functioning. Um, so if you're in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area, we currently are doing a mobile service there. Um, so go check us out, neuroflex.com. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Robert Hadaya. Dr. Hadaya is a caring, compassionate doctor who is devoted to restoring each of his patients to health. He gets to know each patient thoroughly, psychologically, and medically. Dr. Hadaya has been at the cutting edge of medical practice, psychiatry, and psychopharmacology since 1979. He has decades of clinical training and experience, is board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, a distinguished fellow of American Psychiatric Association, and is certified as proficient in psychopharmacology by the American Society of Clinical Psychopharmacology. Dr. Hadaya acquired specialized training in psychiatry at the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, so Dr. Hadaya, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course, of course. So tell me about kind of, uh, you know, your initial uh, interest in medicine. And did you always know that you wanted to kind of get into psychiatry and neurology? Or what was your sort of uh, introduction to the fields? That's a great question. It's a funny thing, because it was, it was really kind of an accident. I was in medicine, I actually was, was uh, matched to be a surgeon. Uh, and my fourth year of my training, I had a couple of electives to take, and I just had to take something. I really didn't like psychiatry at all, even though I was a psychology major, major in college. And uh, But I had a child, and I thought, well, let me take child psychiatry. Maybe it'll make me into a better father. And, you know, I learned something. So I did, and I had a great mentor, and I uh, taught me how to hypnotize a uh, a guy who was a 10-year-old boy, actually, who was hospitalized with abdominal pain. They couldn't figure out what it was, so he sent me up to hypnotize him. And uh, I said, well, I don't know how to do hypnosis. He says, well, lie down. I'll teach you. <laughs> he taught me how to do hypnosis in 10 minutes. He says, now go hypnotize him. So I went upstairs to the fifth floor, introduced myself, hypnotized him. Age regressed him down to three. And then I got to three, and I realized he'd never told me what, how to get him back. And so I had to improvise. And anyway, long story short, I brought him back. His pain went away and I was blown away by the mind. And I was like, wow, I will never get bored here. The brain is an amazing thing. And so I switched actually and uh, changed into psychiatry and, and went down the traditional road and uh, integrating various types of psychotherapies and psychopharmacology. And then eventually through my own chronic fatigue, uh, after I wrote my first book, 
uh, I developed chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, treated myself and basically learned about functional medicine, which I was doing before. I was kind of always following the truth in, in science and it leads you to functional medicine among other things. So, uh, but then I took formal training back in the late nineties and I've been uh, practicing functional medicine since. Awesome. And what can you tell me about kind of like functional psychiatry and, and just, you know, you having kind of seen just the traditional, you know, psychotherapy and medication route, uh, what was your experience with that? And how do you see kind of some of these uh, additional therapies, such as like the hyperbaric oxygen or feedback, um, these different modalities, uh, how do you see those kind of compare to the more traditional ones? Okay. So, so I would say, let's have three baskets. Let's have traditional psychiatry, which is basically, basically medication and psychotherapy. Uh, and then the second basket is functional medicine. And the third basket is what I call high lane H-Y-L-A-N-E technologies. So, so the first basket has use, you know, although the truth is the studies show clearly that pharma, psychopharm for depression, for example, is not really any better than placebo, although in some people it clearly is helpful. So I would not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but there's excessive reliance on this. I'm not the biggest believer in psychotherapy. I do think there are specific psychotherapies that can be very helpful, like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, there are some targeted therapies, but I, I personally have come to believe that most of what we see as psychiatric and psychological is actually not, um, that it's based on either problems in the body, uh, physiology, metabolic problems, infections, the functional medicine stuff, uh, or it could be in the brain from traumatic brain injuries or network imbalances uh, you know, um, or genetic problems, et cetera. The psychology comes in, in, in two places. One place is how do you adapt to your problems, which your, your, your limitations, do you do it with grace or do you drug yourself? You know, how do you adapt? Right. And the second is character. Character is something that can be learned, but character, I would define it is loosely defined as, learning how or being able to balance self-interest against or in concert with the collective interest, cooperation versus self-direction. There has to be a nice balance there. And that's character and, you know, morals, et cetera. These things are learned. You don't need a psychotherapist for this. You can do it at church. You can do it through the Bible. You could do it through 12-step meetings. Uh, you know, there are different ways of doing it. I don't think a therapist is necessary. Therapists might be very helpful for trauma, severe depression, things like that. The, the third basket is the work, what I like to think of as kind of working inside the brain, which you do a lot of. Uh, and for this, we, we do a very detailed analysis of quantitative EEG, look at networks, look at surface areas, uh, et cetera. And then we use hyperbaric oxygen sometimes uh, to heal head injuries, to work with people who have, you know, early dementias. Uh, um, and we use a laser. We use the QEG to guide the laser, which is a, one type of photobiomodulation. Uh, some people use LEDs, uh, which is a lower level light. Uh, the laser is a higher intensity light, and we direct it spe to specific 
areas in the brain based on what we see in the QEG. And that, ha that, that has allowed us to actually do some pretty, well, I don't know what to say, except unbelievable, literally unbelievable things. Like uh, I published a paper on this in March, uh, reversing seven years, a woman who had facial blindness, she couldn't, she couldn't remember faces. After you know, and uh, I wasn't trying to treat this. I was trying to treat something else with the laser. She also had seizure and she had early dementia. But lo and behold, after the first treatment, her facial blindness was cured. <clears throat> and uh, we did objective testing. So I published that case. And recently, we reversed two cases of expressive aphasia, which was very common early in the dementia process. And so. Uh, and there are other treat severe treatment resistant depression we've been able to treat etc so the laser gives us another tool so that's kind of what i do is a combination of the functional traditional psychiatry functional medicine and the high lane technologies and i'd i'd love to break down kind of talk about each of those those modalities of the high lane technologies and you know kind of maybe starting with with hyperbaric oxygen therapy that's something that people may be kind of familiar about, like using like with burn victims or um, like deep sea divers, right? Um, but tell me about kind of hyperbaric oxygen therapy in its use in psychiatry and neurology and just some of the things that it does for the brain and some of the effects that you guys see from it. Well, it's a great question. So um, hyperbaric oxygen is pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, I actually started using it uh, back in uh, probably 2019. And what it does, it's, it's really not actually as much about the oxygen as it is about the pressure. Uh, some people like to use very high levels of oxygen, 100% O2. I actually don't like to do that because there's, it can create free radical uh, damage. I, I'm just not that comfortable with that there may be situations where that's a great thing to do but i uh, generally avoid that we will uh, pump in 100 percent oxygen into the chamber but the people are not sitting breathing the mask uh from the mask with with that um so uh the the way that that it works is it it uh increases there are lots of mechanisms but it increases uh blood flow basically into the small capillaries, oxygen flow, nutrient flow. Um, and by doing this, obviously, the tissues get more nutrients, more of what they need. It increases stem cell production in the brain. There's some evidence for that. Um, and you, when you deliver these things, you basically have tissues getting what they need and, uh, and the body can actually do some repair. Awesome. Um, okay. So, so that's hyperbarics. So tell me about, I'm, I'm really intrigued by, by the laser and the specifically, you know, the using the QEG to guide the laser treatment. So first off kind of, uh, why, why the laser? Um, and also if you could sort of break down, um, the difference between, you know, maybe what people are seeing with like commercial devices, uh, like photobiomodulation devices, um, that are maybe lower intensity, as you mentioned versus, kind of this higher powered laser? Well, so first of all, the, the light, when the light enters the brain, the, uh, the way that the, the probable, most likely most important mechanism 
uh, and we don't know for sure, but we believe this to be true, is that the photon actually enters the cell and goes into the mitochondria, complex four of the mitochondria. Uh, the mitochondria, for people who don't know, uh, think of it like a battery, the battery of your cell. And think of it like it has five pores, there are five complexes. And the, you know, when you eat food, the food is converted in such a manner that the, the food helps activate the uh, transport of electrons, which is basically like electricity from complex one to two to three to four, et cetera, right? So these electrons are being handed off. Now, when they get to complex four, uh, what normally happens is complex four combines the electron with oxygen, and the result is this uh, ATP, the energy molecule, that basically without ATP, we're dead. Uh, ATP runs every process needed. It's the energy molecule is produced in complex four. At the outside of this pore in the, the battery, in the mitochondria, uh, is a nitric oxide molecule, NO. The nitric oxide molecule is sitting there, and it, uh, the photon kind of bumps the nitric oxide off the pore, and it allows the flow of ATP uh, to flow more generously, let's say. And so energy molecules are released. In addition, the nitric oxide diffuses into the surrounding cells and tissue and nitric oxide increases blood flow. So you're getting increased energy and increased blood flow. Then there are other, you know, other mechanisms, you know, free radicals and increasing growth factors and things like that. But I think that the, this is the likely primary mechanism and then there are secondary effects downstream. And uh, so that's kind of a, that's how it probably works. Now, question arises, um, well, how much light gets through the skull? How much light gets past the hair and the skin and the meninges and the bone and the blood, et cetera, et cetera. And Henderson published uh, an article indicating with a laser that about two, roughly 2.4 to 2.9% of light penetrates the skull. Um, we use different wavelengths. Some wavelengths, you know, have better penetration than others, et cetera. The LEDs, which are lower, they're not coherent light, uh, but they are photons, uh, are thought to penetrate, but obviously at a much lower amount, right? There's, there, uh, Berman, Marvin Berman and his group put out a study recently uh, showing benefits of LEDs. Uh, you know, some of these commercial devices like the V-Lite, Cyton uh, Bright, et cetera. He's got his own device. Uh, and, and showing improvement in cognitive function, people with cognitive decline. Um, the question, there's a question whether the light is really penetrating or not, but some people say, well, they're getting results because it's a non-local effect, meaning the light is penetrating, but it's being carried through the blood, for example, and the body, the mitochondria are picking up energy that way. So the, we don't really know for sure, but you know they do QEGs with the helmets on and they see changes in the QEG. So it, you know, it's probably penetrating at a lower level. What we're doing is a little different in the sense that A, we're using coherent light, we're picking the wavelength, and we're targeting it to specific areas. Um, whereas the helmets are really not targeting, you can target front, back, or quadrants uh, in some of the newer helmets, uh, but we're very targeted. So as an example, 
had a guy, um, probably anyone would call him paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, it's a complex case, but long story short, it turned out that he uh, was having his whole life visual distortions, meaning if he looked at anyone's face, he thought they were looking at him in a demeaning manner. Well, when I did his quantitative EEG, his whole brain was normal except for two tracks. And one was the longitudinal occipital tract, uh, fasciculus, which goes from the front to the back, and it controls uh, your the valence, the emotional valence of a face. You know, someone's looking at you, how do you see it? Is it positive, is it negative, et cetera? And then there was the vertical occipital tract, which also was involved in face, faces. These two were abnormal, so I decided to use the laser to treat those two tracks. And over the course of four sessions, his visual distortions actually melted away, and he described it in, in detail. Um, and uh, it was pretty remarkable. That lasted for nine months. And uh, so he had developed a social phobia because he was basically seeing people as looking at him in a demeaning way. So that's very precise. Or these recent two cases of aphasia that I've uh, reversed, not 100%, I'd say like 85% that these people are now able to speak. Uh, one woman who couldn't speak more than a few words in a sentence, I was able to have a 45-minute therapy session with her. Um, and another woman, um, you know, really with the first treatment, she was better for two days. And the, the second treatment, she was better for seven days. And she actually... Report, she got a, her own laser uh, so she can administer it at home because she came to me from Illinois. So this is targeted. I use the QEG. I say, okay, which areas are being affected, you know, uh, and how does that fit with the patient's symptoms? Uh, what kind of pulse frequency should I use? What wavelength should I use? You know, how long? What's the response? Check the QEG afterward. You know, it, it's a very personalized uh, approach as opposed to putting on a helmet. Not that the helmet doesn't have use for people. I don't know yet um, on that. You know, I'll, I'll say it parenthetically that in psychiatry, um, there's a long history and people can read about it in a book called Mad in America by Robert Whitaker. There's a long history of roughly 50 year cycles. Uh, and, you know, the psychiatry gets very excited about things and then psychiatry falls out of things. And, uh, you know, it used to be insulin coma. That was great. That was going to cure everything. You know, at one point, Toby, they were actually putting people in like centrifuges and spinning them around like a carousel at high rates. And that was like great. The initial studies were, wow, this really works for major psychiatric problems. Every hospital had like a carousel that could like spin people around 10 people at a time. Wow, this is great. There's a real moneymaker and they're publishing and it was great. And then over the course of time, well, it doesn't quite hold up, you know? And uh, at the end of the 50 years, it's like, oh, this doesn't really work. We need something new. And then they find something new. So we're at the end of the psychopharmacology thing. Not that it doesn't have a place, it does help some people but it's massively overused. Uh, and now here we are with all these in-brain things, the light therapies, right? The photobiomodulation, et cetera. So, you know, does the helmet work? 
you know, we're in the early phases, you know, it may not make sense, but when I see a study like Marvin's study, I'm like, okay, that's good, but I know we're in the early phase. So it could be like an excitement thing. I don't know. Uh, but I am in my patients, I am seeing certain things. So um, this woman from Illinois is talking. She's talking. You know, this that's not in my imagination. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Is that going to work for everybody? Uh, probably not, but it is going to work for some people. So it's not the be and end all, right? But it is a new tool that will have its place. Right. Yeah, fair enough. That seems like a reasonable approach. So so we touched on uh, the, the hyperbarics and the laser. Now, the last component of Hylane, uh, talk to me about neural exercise. So, so neural exercise, I like neural exercise because it, it gives you that idea of like, well, you got to use your brain and work it out, right? Just like you do a muscle. And as you know, neurofeedback can be amazing. Um, we work with a company that um, delivers the neurofeedback in people's homes. Uh, we do it in the office as well. Uh, and they told us that our patients do better than most patients. And that's because we do the functional medicine first. Not always, but generally. So it makes sense to me because, you know, if you're giving the body all its nutrients and you're removing its toxins and its infections, and then you do neurofeedback, well, the brain is going to have a better environment to work in. But uh, the neurofeedback is one of the main modalities, but then we use, you know, brain training, brain HQ, uh, try to increase, you know, get people dancing, get people doing uh, more novelty in their lives, you know, trying to do those kinds of things, uh, challenging themselves. I have a woman with, uh, who was a, really a genius level, really, and um, deteriorated a lot. We've stopped the deterioration. Uh, but she deteriorated into a cognitive decline. She was losing one brain function a week, as she puts it. Now that's not happening anymore. Uh, and she has found through training ways around doing certain things that she couldn't do, like doing a recipe. How does she? How does she do that? And she did brain training, you know, basically to learn how to do them strategies to do that. The brain, as you know, is really plastic, and when you challenge it. And you give it the nutrients and give it the oxygen and the energy and you do all these things, you know, the brain can pick up an air, some of the areas that were lost. And uh, so when we say neurodegenerative disease, it doesn't really have to be degenerative, you know. Uh, now, she won't recover all her functions, probably, unless we give her some stem cells. Uh, maybe she'll recover some more functions, but, but we've stopped the degeneration. So we can do that now with some dementias with Parkinson's. We can do that with Alzheimer's, uh, vascular dimension, dementia. You know, obviously, the sooner in the process, the better. If it's an advanced case, it's not likely to be something that we can do. Got it. And now I want to ask you about, so with kind of the Highland program, putting all these things together, does it matter, you know, the order of whether you do the laser first or whether you do hyperbaric first? You mentioned in terms of, I think, liking to, you know, address like the functional medicine component um, before potentially doing like neurofeedback, right? So talk to me about kind of just the step-by-step -step process and if it matters what what order. Uh, Toby, you're asking all the great questions. 
really, that's like a great, great question because my assumption was I have to do the functional medicine first and then I can do the laser and the neurofeedback, right? Um, I'm now questioning that, not throwing it out, uh, but um, the first case of aphasia that I reversed was a woman who was about 72 and she, I actually told her husband, I said, I, I don't think we should. She had an early dementia. She had aphasia and she didn't really want to change her diet and she didn't want to do anything. And I told him, I said, listen, this, you're going to be spending a lot of time and energy and money. and It doesn't really make sense because she doesn't want to do it. He said, listen, I grew up on a farm. If you lead a horse to water and they don't want to drink, you stick the hose in their mouth. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, then let's give it a shot if you can do that. But he couldn't. So after a couple of months, we got really nowhere. And I just said, you know, let's try the laser. So I'm sitting in my office, figuring out my laser plan. And he's, they go to the laser room and pops out of my mouth, God, I need a miracle. Because I don't really think this is going to do anything. Right. So, so I go into the laser room and I apply the laser and she starts talking. And I'm I have tears in my eyes and he has tears. We're both like blown away. And the, you know, I she had I don't even know 20 or 30 more treatments. Uh, and I was able to have a conversation for 45 minutes with her. I mean, there wasn't it wasn't perfect. She still had some trouble finding words. So I didn't do any functional medicine there. And she's responding I'm like, whoa, this this turns things on, on the head. And then I had this other woman from Illinois who she came to me from Illinois. And I was like, you know, she's here. She can't speak. It's early dementia. But, you know, I have the laser here. Uh, and time is of the essence in, in these neurodegenerative disorders. You, you don't have time to wait six months because you're deteriorating. I said, well, let me give it a shot. And so I gave her two treatments and and. Her daughter told me, and her daughter is very accurate. She says she's herself again. That lasted two days. A month later, she came back. I gave her another two treatments, and then she was talking and normal for seven days. I didn't do any functional medicine, so now she has her laser and she's using the laser. And now the question is: Okay, she's much better. Now the question is: Well, what has been pushing her into dementia? and aphasia and so we're we actually i just completed a review two days ago of, of her lab workup um i spent six hours going over all her labs and what i there are a number of things really but one of the things that i found was that her mitochondria are having some difficulty uh, she had high levels of succinic acid on uh, two different tests and Succinic acid is the complex two of the mitochondria. So there's a little blockage there, right? Um, and she had high levels of organophosphates, which are pesticides, and those work on succinate dehydrogenase, right? Succinic acid dehydrogenase. Uh, that, so that may be why her mitochondria are failing. There I come in with the laser affecting complex four down further downstream and saying, okay, here's some energy mitochondria and she's doing well. Also interesting is that there's the animal data 
that emotional stress affects the mitochondria, primarily complex four. And this woman had lots and lots of emotional stress and trauma, current and in the past. So it's, it's just fascinating, just fascinating. So this woman, uh, we're gonna try and get rid of the toxins and restore her mitochondria. And uh, she had some parasites, she's had, you know, a bunch of other really, like I think there were 11 things we have to, the 11 factors pushing her into dementia. Um, but we did a quick rescue with the laser. And I'd love to talk about some of those other kind of common factors that are pushing people towards, you know, either mental health issues, neurological conditions, neurodegeneration. Like, what are the most common things? Like, once you guys really dig into people's, you know, issues and and what what are what are some of the common findings? Okay, so first thing, this is very very important. Um, the data is pretty clear now that depression and PTSD. Are, high, are risk factors for uh, mild cognitive impairment and dementia. About 30 to 50% of people with depression, recurrent depression, uh, will end up with mild cognitive impairment and, and, and dementia. Now, this means that the underlying processes, which is what you're asking about, that uh, underlie depression are also the same processes that underlie neurodegeneration in many people, right? So it's the same thing. And the depression is kind of like the first sign in 30 to 50%, okay, of, of depression, uh, patients with depression. Now, what are the main, most common things? So uh, we break these things up into uh, nodes. I'll call them nodes or systems, right? So digestion, nutrition, uh, immune function, infections, inflammation, uh, detoxification, toxicity, right? Oxidative stress, mitochondria, hormones, every hormone, every hormonal system affects the brain. Uh, genetics, epigenetics, which is methylation. We think of it as methylation, genetics, epigenetics, structural problems, head injuries, right? Um, those are the main categories. Now, generally, I would say the most common problems fall into the uh, the uh, hormonal, immune, uh, and uh, nutrition, digestion areas. But uh, by the time people come to see me, there's usually a list of 10 different things uh, that need to be corrected. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, some people have sleep apnea, for example, you know, you got a, that's a structural problem, but that's also could be a hormonal problem because if you're hypothyroid, you have sleep apnea. Um, you people, this woman I was just telling you about with the aphasia, her copper level was 203. It should be 100. Well, high copper is toxic to the brain. And well, she has copper pipes. So she has a lot of toxicity. She has low pesticides. She has a copper, you know, mold, she has mold, she has a mold called mycophenolic acid, which suppresses the immune system. Um, it's such a powerful immune suppressant that the pharmaceutical companies put it into a pill and sell it for a lot of money. You can also get mycophenolic acid from blue cheese. Uh, so, you know, 
So that's everyone's different, but I'd say immune system infections, inflammation, you know, Lyme disease, for example, you know, Bartonella, you know, these types of things, as well as hormones. The hormones are generally a, almost always, not always, but almost always a secondary effect, like after years of stress and trauma, immune function, the hormones kind of give out with age, nutrition, et cetera. So that's kind of the, I'd say the 50,000 foot view. Right. And, and, you know, it reminded me as you were talking just of my initial, when I heard about kind of this, like taking just like a broad overview and connecting all of these different dots was uh, probably Dale Bredesen's book, um, which I saw you guys incorporate the Bredesen protocol in, into some of what you do. And, and just, you know, it interesting being like, you know, with Alzheimer's that, so many of the drugs just try to target, you know, acetylcholine, just like one specific neurotransmitter. And then they wonder, you know, why people aren't getting better. And, you know, really it's like, I think there were like 36 right, different, you know, holes that he describes involving hormones and, you know, nutritional deficiencies and, and just heavy metals, like so many different things. And it being like such a complex thing that, that it sounds like it's often tried like, uh, diseases or dysfunction has tried to, you know, uh, be condensed down to something that's so simple when really like the human body, it's so complex okay. and it's, it's kind of foolish in my opinion that we try to simplify things so much. A hundred percent correct. So Dale, I mean, I'm, I'm in a, a group with Dale actually, and there were, they just published a study of 25 patients with cognitive decline and they got 84% of them stopped their decline or got better. Okay. And now they're uh, actually doing, he asked me to be an investigator and the next study was 85 people, but actually don't have the time to do it. But um, that's, it's a hard program, but it works. It's hard, but it works. And they, they haven't even used the, the laser or the, you know, photobiomodulation, but to me, that's uh I shouldn't say it, but it's like a no-brainer. <laughs> I hear you. So I wanted to, to ask you, you know, we've been talking a lot about kind of like treatment of different dysfunction and, um, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction and neurodegeneration. What can you tell me about preventative measures that people can take, you know, um, to hopefully not get to that point um, of maybe like needing some of these advanced therapies or at least prolonging their, you know, health span as much as possible? So that's a great question because it's ultimately going to be about prevention, right? And uh, so preventative, uh, avoid traumatic brain injuries. Uh, you know, we have our kids playing lacrosse, playing soccer, playing football, having car accidents. And these head injuries have effects which are not appreciated in the general community, the medical community. Um and the effects are not always immediate either because you may have a head injury when you're young and then when your brain tries to reorganize itself as it does in adolescence, late adolescence, you may have difficulty and your problems may actually show up at that point years after your head injury uh, because brain can't properly reorganize. Uh, so traumatic brain injuries, preventing them um, at all costs really. The brain is uh, you know, sensitive sensitive organ um, and then I would say clearly diet is important critical uh, we're surrounded by 
poor quality foods and you know that's that can be a challenge for people but you know i don't know i think i think it's like 80 percent of americans are now overweight or obese that's a big problem because that affects your brain's ability to extract energy from food so your brain could be running at an energy deficit which it's not going to be happy about that and what it'll do is your higher order thinking will suffer first and you'll be more emotional uh second then over time it'll end up being the result of that kind of dietary issue will end up being reduced blood flow and oxygenation etc to the brain so diet is critical reasonable exercise not crazy exercise reasonable exercise is a great preventative and then i would say ensuring good quality sleep not always so easy but that's very important and then uh social connectedness is really a big deal um the blue zones you know one of the main factors in the blue zones is community you know, in the united states we have uh, where kind of there's an animization of the society where like individuals right single parent families more than 50 percent of kids are raised in a single parent home this is not good this is not good uh not good for the child not certainly not good for the parent either uh, so communities need to be built, rebuilt. Uh, I could talk about how that should happen, but that's very important. Um, and um, I guess those would be, I might have left something out here, but I think that would be the idea. Mold, mold, I want to say mold. And I have a big concern about mold, kids in college dorms, drinking, substance abuse. Yeah, avoid that at all costs. Find, find helpful ways of learning to relax, uh, lots of ways to rejuvenate, restore, you know, those are important. So there's a lot of stuff, there's fundamental stuff, but these are lifestyle things, right? These are all lifestyle things. So basically, and maybe in the bottom line is deal with your lifestyle, develop a healthy lifestyle. That might be, now some people might have genetic vulnerabilities, obviously, um, but it's really in a way, as I think about it, it comes down to lifestyle. Right. And I think I think that's super empowering. I'll say one other thing, though, just to take away some of the power. <laughs> I'm sorry to do this, but <laughs> it is lifestyle. Right. But we are like bacteria in a, in a Petri dish. So if people don't know, a Petri dish is like a little disc with a culture medium, a gel. And you put a little bacteria in there and it'll grow. But how that bacteria grows depends on the the culture medium right so we are like bacteria we grow depending and our genetic expression depends on uh the culture medium that we're in our culture right so can the bacteria or can the human on their own change their lifestyle change their eating change their relaxation change their relationships their community. You can, but it's a conscious effort. You have to be very mindful and directed because the force, we are social animals, we're connected to people, whether we know it or not, or we like it or not, we connect to our culture, we're connected to the people that are around, and we are strongly influenced by those that we're around, right? Even rates of obesity, if I hang out around obese people in three, four years, I'm going to be overweight. You know, that's just going to happen. Can I stop it? I, I could probably stop it. If someone said to me, uh, 
you know, if you cannot let this happen, you know, you're going to win the lottery or something. Well, maybe I could do that. But not knowing that, I probably can't. So understand the cultural influence is very powerful. But yes, ultimately, it is lifestyle. And ultimately, it's in your control. Right. And it, and it sounds like a thing of, of like willpower of like, if you're in a unhealthy kind of cultural situation, or just surrounded by people that are not conducive to, to your well being, it's like, you've got to exert all of this additional willpower to try to, you know, force yourself there. Whereas if you were to just set your life up in a way and if our society was set up in a way that was conducive to you know good health and brain health like wouldn't be nearly as much of a struggle it sounds like it's exactly right exactly right it's a big ask it's doable but it's much harder to do when your culture doesn't support you right well dr hadaya i wanted to to ask you about you know something that you mentioned earlier about these kind of waves of in psychiatry of, of different uh, different modalities being used and and some are here to stay, some aren't. What, when you look like outside of, you know, what we've already talked about with the hyperbaric and lasers and neurofeedback, when you look at some of the other um, kind of psychiatric modalities that are now kind of coming into play here, what are some of the ones you're most excited about? And what do you think is, you know, is really going to stay versus just being kind of a, a gimmick uh great question well uh, the gimmick one i uh, i can answer i think rtms is a little bit of a gimmick um i actually was that's magnetic transcranial magnetic uh repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation and i actually looked into it about 10 years ago i was thinking about buying one of these rtms machines very expensive and actually spoke to a lot of doctors and went to the VA, watched them do it and talked to them and read the, all the articles. And I concluded like the evidence was pretty slim, you know, really slim. And the cost was really high and the, the intensity of the treatment was also very high. Uh, so I said, well, this is, this is a gimmick. Uh, well, they got it approved by Medicare, Medicaid, right? Well, that's a boon to hospitals. So now they use it in hospitals. They make millions of dollars on now, there's a new type called Theta Pulse RTMS, and maybe that'll, maybe that'll turn out to be better. I don't know. Um, but to me, that's uh, it's a gimmick. But look, even placebos have a 30% response rate, right? So, but uh, to me, that's a gimmick. Now, the other stuff, you know, there's uh, electrical stimulation. I just don't have enough experience to, to comment on it. I, I, I've been busy with the things I've been doing, so I haven't had a chance to explore it. Um, I, uh, if I had, if I had my brothers, if my wish could come true, it would really be to heal the culture, to, you know, clean up the toxic chemicals from our environment where, I mean, the people that I see now are so much more ill, uh, than they were when I started. You know, when I started, if a patient came to me with depression, I don't know, I knew that, you know, month two months three months at the outside they would be better uh but now there's so many things involved there's uh, uh and, and uh, you know the treatment could take six months you know uh it can take a year depends what it is i mean now there's this thing called mass cell activation disorder i, I don't know if you've heard of it or listeners have heard of it but it's it can present as anything you know almost anything and 
it's it's so common. Well, this this was not around before that I know of. I mean, not that it never existed; it did. But the inflammatory stimuli that provoke it, kind of cross-react with your genetics and your diet. It's just so much more prevalent now. So these are people who come in and they can't even take a supplement or they have certain foods they can't eat or they choke on their food or having anxiety, they're having hives, they're hypermobile, you know, and then it's a whole new skill set of being able to treat these people. So, you know, illness, illness morphs, you know, and treatments morph over time, you know, and, uh, so there'll be, you know, there are approaches to mast cell activation disorder. Uh, I, I'm not giving a really long-winded answer. I, mean, I guess at this point, I don't know. Uh, I, I'd say the major stumbling block in psychiatry is patients being able to do what they need to do. Uh, I would say that I really feel that we have, I, I'll speak to myself, I have so many tools and I have a systemic, systematic way of approaching things that I feel like, for the most part, I know what to do. I know it has to be done. Um, but getting people to do it, that's another story. So, you know, we have coaches and nutritionists and therapists, et cetera. We have a team of people that help people. But ultimately, it comes down to do they have enough support and structure and ability to do you know, a complex workup, a complex program to change how they function. That's ultimately what it comes down to. I hear you. Well, Dr. Hadaya, we're coming up onto the end of the show. Um, before we wrap up, though, I just wanted to ask if there's, you know, if there's any loose ends that we haven't tied up in, in just everything that we've talked about uh, related to functional psychiatry and these different modalities, um, anything that we missed? Yeah, I think the 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 thing that we missed uh, is spirituality. Um, I think um, now not everyone's oriented to this way, but I would say that it's always to someone's benefit to be well connected to something transcendent outside of themselves. And so, the, obviously, that can take all kinds of forms. It could be a community. It could be a cause. It could be a church, synagogue. Um, it could be uh, uh, um, lots of things. It could be God, if you want to call it God. You know, uh, it could be through prayer. It could be through meditation. Um, but I believe that developing the idea that we're not in control, that we do the best we can, but contrary to what we would like, and contrary to what the facts are, we're mostly in control of our attitude and our decisions very well said i I definitely agree with that well dr hadaya it's been it's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you Um, for the listeners who found this this information useful and want to learn more or connect with you or um, just find out more about high lane like where would you direct them to uh the best thing is to go to my website there's lots of stuff there videos there's a lot of stuff on my website we try to keep it updated and a lot of information there and then my website is whole psychiatry kind of like whole foods w-h-o-l-e psychiatry i had it before they did by the way mm-hmm. it was whole psychiatry w-h-o-l-e psychiatry.com 
and then th there's uh, information there. And if they want, they're interested in uh, being a patient, they can fill out a form. And sometimes what we do is a uh, educational consult. If they're working with a psychiatrist or an internist, I will do an evaluation and then kind of make a plan and kind of educate them and hand that off to their their person. Uh, that's another uh, another option. Beautiful. Well, I definitely recommend listeners go and check that out. I'll include a link to uh, your website in the show notes. And for the listeners who enjoyed the episode today, would really appreciate it if you left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And in addition to Apple Podcasts, you can also listen to the audio version of the podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, or most of the other major audio streaming platforms. And you can also check out the video on our YouTube channel, Neuroflex. Uh, there's the full podcast episodes along with podcast clips that you can find out uh, find on that channel. Uh, so Dr. Hadaya, I wanted to again thank you so much for for taking the time out of your day to come on the show and just I'm I'm really impressed with you know your being on the cutting edge of of psychiatry and neurology and and all the the ways that you've been able to implement these different uh, treatments successfully with one another. It's really remarkable. Well, it's you know it comes from pursuing just trying to find the truth in science and pursuing it you know and uh, never giving up that's the that's the most important thing